Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Caitlin Marie Carter in an episode about her new book from Yale University Press titled Democracy and Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. How did your background lead you to find your book's topic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, after I graduated college, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked for a few years there doing media relations, um, working on mainly issue-based campaigns. Um, and when I was there, I just got really interested in um, the relationship between public opinion and elected officials and sort of how elected officials um, make decisions or how they think about their relationship to their constituents. Um, and I'd always been really interested in the press and I, I became really interested in the media's role in sort of facilitating that relationship between elected officials and the public. And I always knew that I wanted to go back to graduate school and study history. So I kind of combined these interests when I got to grad school and I figured, you know, I'm going to go back to the origin of modern representative democracy in the late 18th century, the age of revolutions. Uh, And I want to look at how revolutionaries, politicians, citizens thought about these questions at that time, um, just to try to better understand um, sort of how these things were conceptualized from the beginning. What about the use of secrecy in governance? How has that been called into question over a debate about the American Constitution? Sure, yeah. So uh, in my book, I um, I was kind of interested, like I said, I went back to the revolutionary era. And uh, what I found pretty much immediately is that starting in the mid to late 18th century, there's just a lot of writing about secrecy and the state and secrecy in government. And there's a lot of anxiety about this. Um, And to me, that was sort of, uh, that provided a clue to start to ask, well, why at this time um, do people start to get worried about this? What I found is that, you know, though it had not never been questioned before in the early modern period, it was kind of taken for granted that a lot of politics and state work, um, government work was done in secret or behind closed doors. And that started to change um, in the later 18th century. And I think that it started to change because people were reconceiving of governments and the relationship between governments and the people. Um, And this is especially true in something like the American or the French revolutions, where they're setting up republics for the first time and having to figure out how to actually put popular sovereignty into practice through representative government. Um, So as soon as you have a government that claims to be speaking for the people and, and acting on behalf of the people, then suddenly secrecy is kind of called into 
question. Um, it doesn't seem to be taken for granted. And you have a lot of people who start to say, well, if the government is acting on behalf of the people, you know, surely the people should be able to know what's happening in the government and what politicians are doing and how they're arriving at their decisions. So these new ideas are kind of coming into play um, in the age of revolutions. And when you have the American Constitutional Convention that gathers in Philadelphia in 1787 and writes the federal constitution, despite this kind of questioning of secrecy that's going on, they decide to meet behind closed doors and work under oath of secrecy. So I, that, that presented a puzzle for me, for my, for my book. I started to think, well, why did they do that? Um, given these kind of changing attitudes and questioning of secrecy um, that was coming up at the time. And what I found and what I argue in the book is that they decide to meet in secret because a lot of them have a sort of conception of what it means to work in the best interest of the people, which to them is once the these wise, virtuous men, and to them it's men, um, are chosen to go and form policy or write a constitution on behalf of the people, that their work is best uh, carried out in a certain sense, insulated from the broader public or concerns about public opinion um, or what their constituents might want them to do. That, you know, they're meant to go there. They're meant to deliberate and calm, sort of at a distance from the the kind of public turmoil um, and arrive at the wisest or best policy outcome or constitution in this case as a result. And so for them, they see secrecy as a really useful tool to kind of create that space and create that insulated environment where they can come and actually um, make these policies that they consider wise. Now, the framers are not um, the only ones who are around. And when they released the Constitution to the public, um, the fact that they had met in secrecy over that summer becomes an issue of um, a great deal of contention. So people who were questioning the Constitution, um, often known as anti-federalists, they pretty immediately point to the secrecy of the convention as a cause for concern. And they start to say, you know, you can't produce a document in the name of the people if you form it behind closed doors um, without public input. So in the United States, or what becomes the United States, the Constitutional Convention and the fact that it met in secret, that really becomes um, an important sort of moment when questions about the proper place of secrecy in the governing process really get brought to the forefront and, and become really politicized. What was the role of secrecy in the process of drafting the Constitution? Yeah, so like I said, um, when the delegates forming Constitutional Convention arrived in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, um, they closed their doors and they met under oath of secrecy. And this was um, really important to them and to the process. So, I mean, in some ways, it was not totally uncommon at the time for a deliberative or legislative body to, to meet in secret. Um, they also, you know, likely had concerns about the possibility of foreign spies being around or, you know, even concerns about the mandate for what it was they were there to do. They were 
only authorized to go and amend the Articles of Confederation, but many of the delegates arrived there with bigger plans, as we see um, happening over the course of that summer. Um, but what what I show in the book is that for many of them, um, their their concern was that secrecy was would be sort of a very useful tool to create space for what Madison called unbiased discussion in the room. And what he meant by that was a, a space where the delegates um, could compromise, could change their minds, could speak frankly, um, and not have to constantly worry about how that would be presented um, to people outside or go back home and have to explain or answer for the, the, the decisions that they made or kind of the compromises they might have cut. Um, and I talk about in the book how this had a big effect on probably the way the Constitution came together, um, but also the way that it got ratified and was interpreted um, over time, just because it really did create um, that sense of space. It gave a lot of the delegates who were there in Philadelphia the leeway to go back to their home states and um, you know, talk about the Constitution in a particular way, kind of smoothing over some of the disagreements or presenting ambiguities in one way or another, depending on where, who their audience was. Um, and that that was really important for giving the the Constitution this kind of sense of disembodied kind of unanimity behind it. And in fact, um, later in his life, Madison wrote that he thought without having met in secret that there would have been no constitution. So he considered it really fundamental um, to actually enabling that convention to, to produce a governing document at all. And how did the framers understand whom they were representing and how they should do it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the framers were sent by state legislatures um, to, like I said, amend the Articles of Confederation. So in that sense, um, it's interesting. All of them had you know, particular ideas about whom or what they were representing. Um, most of them probably didn't think of themselves as necessarily coming as a representative in the same way that one would come to a state legislature, for example, after having been elected by constituents in the state. Um, but what I argue is important is that um, they framed the document still in the name of we the people, sort of staked their legitimacy on creating something in the name of an American people that um, they're calling into being with, with the formation of the federal government. Um, and that also um, this was sort of a way that they thought about representation beyond the moment of just the founding, the constituent moment. Um, many of them went forward to serve in the newly uh, created federal government in Congress or otherwise, um, and carried forward a lot of these same views about how representation should work and the need for that kind of insulation um, from the outside public. What was the effect of the French revolutionaries convening in front of a boisterous audience as they drafted a constitution for the first time? Yeah, so as you note, the French um, take a pretty different approach from the Americans uh, when they convene as the Estates General in 1789 um, in Versailles. 
partly this is because it's it's a different body that's convening. I mean, for one thing, there are 1,200 elected deputies who, who come to Versailles as part of the Estates General. There are only 55 delegates who, who went to Philadelphia as part of the Constitutional Convention. So it's a much bigger body. Um, it was convened at the invitation of the king, and the idea was that these deputies were meant to come together and convey the population's grievances to the monarch in the process of, of reforming. Pretty quickly after they're there, they um, they discard any binding mandates that they had from the electoral assemblies that had sent them, and they declare that they're not going to disband until they write a constitution um, for France, and they established themselves as a um, permanent representative body called the National Assembly. Um, and in doing this through every step of that process, they're really careful to guarantee the publicity, public access to their meetings. Um, so that included having an audience in their meetings. Um, from the beginning, there were the deputies were sometimes even outnumbered, actually, by unelected uh, members of an audience or spectators who were in the room with them, sometimes even on the floor of the chamber, not separated from the deputies themselves. Um, they would let petitioners come and present petitions during the meetings. They allowed reporters inside and to report and publish accounts of their deliberations. Um, and they're very committed to this. And when the king actually tries to bar public onlookers from coming into the meetings um, in June of 1789, there's a, a bit of an uproar about this. And the deputies, um, you know, they resolve that they will do everything possible to ensure that the public always can come into their meetings um, and, and have a presence there. Um, and they do that partly because they they view this as empowering for them against the the king, right? If if people know what they're doing, if uh, a public is allowed to be part of these meetings, it's much harder, or would be much harder, for the king to shut them down or to block the meetings or what they're doing. So they're using it, you know, strategically in that sense. Um, but also many of them are, are uh, carrying kind of a different vision of what it means to represent the people, um, that that means that you need to consult the constituents, that you need to um, have this dialogue uh, with them um, that's facilitated by this kind of transparency. And even those who don't really adhere to that ideal of how representation should work, even they are pretty committed to transparency. And it's uh, partly, I, I think, just because secrecy was so associated with the monarchy and there's just such a distrust of secrecy um, in the French context at this point. So yeah, the delegates there, they commit to transparency, they work openly. Um, and the effect is, is um, it ends up being fairly destabilizing uh, for them. Pretty soon, there are a lot of cases where um, public opinion, or at least what claims to be public opinion, kind of the loudest of voices um, in the press or in the streets in political clubs, often disagrees or is at odds with decisions that the National Assembly is making. Um, and it becomes very hard for the National Assembly to be claiming to act on behalf of the French people, to speak on behalf of the French people, when they increasingly have 
of these external voices saying, wait a minute, we actually don't agree with what you're doing. And they're able to do that because reporters are reporting on what deputies say. They're, it's easy for people to follow along um, on the decisions that, that are being made and to keep up and express their uh, disagreement or discontent sort of in real time. Um, one good example of that is uh, at the very beginning of the revolution when they're debating whether in their constitution they will allow a, for a royal veto. And the deputies are quickly receiving petitions and letters and it's, um, against allowing this. And they're often kind of presented saying, you know, we're here, we're watching, we're telling you what we want, and we expect you then to do what we want you to do. So in cases where the deputies don't, you know, align themselves with with that, um, that that becomes a really big challenge for them to then claim to still be representing or speaking for the French people when there's sort of a loud voice of French people who is in disagreement with them. So I argue that the transparency that allows for people to follow along, to express their opinions, and kind of allows for that discord to come up between public opinion and the actions of the deputies um, has a very destabilizing um, effect in the French context. Going back to some of your motivations, um, one question that we have is, what motivated you to explore the themes of secrecy and transparency in the context of those revolutions that you were just speaking about? Yeah, so like I was saying at the beginning, I was interested um, in these topics from kind of a contemporary perspective, questions about um, the relationship of the public and elected officials in a democracy, um, the role of the press in facilitating that relationship. And I wanted to go back to the origins of, of modern representative democracy in the 18th century to try to understand how people thought about these kind of questions at that time um, and how they tried to resolve and did or didn't resolve these kind of tensions and, and questions at the time. Um, so that's what led me to it. And um, then once I got into the source material, I just saw that the anxiety over secrecy was just so widespread. And I found it really interesting that I could find that across the Atlantic world. I could find that in the British colonies in North America, in Britain itself, in France, um, that it was kind of a common anxiety and these kind of questions about secrecy and transparency were very linked to how people thought about representative government and, and how it should work. So that's sort of what motivated me to dig into um, the project. And then in terms of just the more of a methodological point, there's been so much written about the ideas, theories, ideology of these revolutions of representative government. And that's such excellent scholarship uh, that I wanted to build on, but I really wanted to shift to look at the practical aspects of representative government and think about how those ideas were translated into practices day to day, and then how the actual practices and procedures of representative government in turn shaped how people thought about and conceptualized this, this form of government. So that's sort of how I ended up um, focusing on practices and, and debates about practices. 
how did the concept of democracy evolve during the age of revolutions as discussed in Democracy in Darkness? Yeah, so I think one thing that we take for granted today is that representative government is a democracy, um, that it's probably, I mean, it's the most common form of democracy um, in today's world. Uh, but I try to go back and recover a moment at which this is not the case. Actually, representative government and democracy or um, in the 18th century were two distinct concepts. And in fact, some people even saw them as being kind of at odds with one another. So when revolutionaries and philosophers, people in the 18th century are talking about democracy, uh, they're more thinking about it um, in like an ancient sense, like an ancient democracy, a system where all citizens participate actively and directly in, in government, um, a sort of one way of thinking about it, or thinking about it as sort of one branch in a mixed government. Um, so like in the English government, the House of Commons would be the democratic element and the House of Lords, the aristocratic, and then you'd have the monarchy. So they're kind of thinking about it um, in these other ways. and. Uh, representative government for them is something different. It's something that is necessitated in the contemporary society. So pretty much everyone agrees that a direct democracy, it's not going to be possible. Even in the 18th century, they're, they're realizing, you know, our societies, these polities are too big, they're too complex, that that's not practical. Um, and so representative government becomes the sort of tool to exercise popular sovereignty, to have government by the people. But there's some disagreement um, as to what that means. So you have some, like someone like Tom Paine, who come in and say, okay, well, we have to, direct democracy is not possible. So we have to have representative government. And in that sense, they view it as sort of like, a necessity. Um, but the idea is that, okay, we just have to have it because direct democracy is not possible. And so what we want to do is make it as democratic as possible in the sense that, you know, we view that representatives should look and act like the people would if they were to come together and convene. So you have this kind of idea that the representative should be agents of the people, that they should come represent specific constituents um, that those constituents should tell them directly what they want them to do and that those representatives should act as if uh, they were the constituents, um, the same kind of decisions that they would make. So th for them, there's this idea that the common will, the common good, that exists in the society and it's up to the representatives to reflect that in, in making their decisions. So you have that viewpoint. Um, and then you have kind of this other viewpoint that, that develops. And this is really articulated by people like James Madison in the Federalist Papers or like the Abbe Sayez um, in France. And the idea is that, well, representative government, it's not just a necessary tool or necessary evil or less good version of democracy. Actually, it's an improvement upon direct democracy um, that actually what it allows us to do is it allows for people to elect the wisest, most virtuous men to then come together, calmly deliberate and um, arrive at the, the common good and legislate in the common good that actually you'll have representatives coming together and they might make 
better decisions than the people themselves would make, even if they could all be convened in the same place. And so for them, representative government, it's more based on the idea that the common will or the common good, that's something that does not exist out there to be reflected by representatives, but something that's actually kind of created through the process of deliberation among representatives. And for them, representative government is sort of like an improvement upon direct democracy. Well, those two views are kind of um, out there and they're kind of jostling for, you know, primacy. Um, But what I kind of show in the book is that both of those views sort of become subsumed under this new term that gets used in the age of revolutions called representative democracy, where um, these ideas are kind of fused together and political representation, representative government comes to be associated with democracy, seen as a new form of democracy. And so my book kind of tries to understand that process and how that actually happened. Um, And I argue that the use of secrecy uh, procedurally and in practice in in these new governments was kind of key to, to facilitating that and to kind of that giving that more insulated style, that that second vision of representation that I was seeing Madison or Saez held to kind of making that um, more of the model in practice. And, and in that sense, it kind of comes to define a democracy that is a little bit less democratic in the sense that it, it is designed to kind of limit popular participation or direct influence or action on elected officials. Were there any surprising findings or insights that emerged during your research of this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I came into this project thinking that, you know, that I was going to explain the origins of valuing transparency in democracies um, and the importance of transparency to kind of forming modern representative government. I certainly did do those things and I I did find those things uh, as I was working through the project, but something unexpected that I learned and sort of realized over the course of researching and, and writing this book was that secrecy is not, was not always a bad thing or a threat to democracy. Like that there were actually people who were making a positive case for it as something that had value and and could actually help facilitate um, democratic governance, representative governance. Um, And I came away from the project with a much more nuanced view of that question. And I, I came to sort of see that it's not so clear cut that secrecy is not always a clear danger to democracy. Again, not to say that it, it's not, you know, that it can't be, or that it sometimes isn't, but um, that it's not by default that way. And that there's a lot more sort of nuance and and complication to that. Something that historians love pointing out. (laughs) How do the themes of secrecy and transparency relate to the contemporary political landscape? Yeah, well, I think through the whole course of researching and and writing this book, there continued to be sort of 
contemporary resonances that um, kept coming up again and again. I mean, one thing that struck me over the course of writing this book is kind of actually how similar a lot of our debates over secrecy and, and transparency in government, how similar they are to the very debates that revolutionaries were having in the 18th century, despite all the changes in technology um, and just the difference in, in the societies that, that we live in today from society back then. But that a lot of these um, a lot of these kind of questions and debates uh, are strikingly similar. Um, one thing that has, I think, become or come a lot more to the forefront um, recently is actually some of the questions that people in the 18th century raised about the effect of transparency, or as they would put it, publicity in politics, um, and some of the concerns that they raised about how that might lead to um, kind of political grandstanding, playing to the audience, kind of preventing um, substantive or meaningful dialogue or work from being done in deliberative assemblies. I think for those of us, you know, living today who are who follow politics or politically aware, you know, those things um, they can almost read as very familiar as maybe even like warnings in a sense that I mean, we, we might see um, some of the same um, concerns about, about transparency in politics, that, that it could have some negative unintended consequences um, that we might not have foreseen. Um, on the other hand, you had a lot of people in the 18th century theorizing that transparency, publicity, would be kind of a panacea, like a solution to a lot of the potential threats um, in politics. So Jeremy Bentham, for example, who's an English um, writer, he writes this um, sort of a manual that he he kind of views as a recommendation to go to the French assembly for how they should work. And he has this whole section on the importance of publicity and how that's very good for politics. And he sort of writes that publicity will be uh, the downfall of any demagogue, because the more that lies or kind of exaggerated speech is is publicized, is it available as available for people to see, that um, you know the great the lesser effect that those lies might have, or that 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 person would be kind of exposed um, as you know not sincere. And I think reading something like that, then today we can look at that and think wow, I, I think, you know, he might have really got that wrong, actually. So it's just very interesting. A lot of these uh, questions kind of remain. And I think what doing this history, what what researching and writing this book taught me is that just a lot of these questions are really central to democratic government and, and that I don't know that they have solid solutions, that we continue to kind of work through them and that we'll probably always be continuing to work through them. In your view, how can the lessons from historical revolutions inform discussions about democracy and governance today? That kind of goes with your last answer. Yeah, um, I think that historians have a really important role to play in helping people think more broadly and kind of stepping outside of the current 
moment or political dynamics as much as possible to just recognize that everything, every idea, every institution, every kind of dynamic has a past. Um, It's not something that we can take for granted. These are not things that have just existed always over time. You know, ideas about democracy or about transparency or secrecy, for example, they've changed over time and they're, they're shaped and they kind of are um, rethought based on very different contexts and, and different contingencies over time. And I think that just recognizing that and realizing that can be really helpful to us today as we try to think about some of the major challenges we face, some of these big questions about um, our democracies, how, how we want them to function, questions about state secrecy or about the effect or place of, of transparency um, in politics. Uh, these are these are really hard questions, and I think it can be really helpful. Um, history can really be a great tool to help us break out of uh, more rigid thinking about these things, taking things for granted, or retreating into you know political viewpoints that we might have, just to think about um, different ways of approaching these questions and look at how different people in the past approach them in different ways and what the effects of those approaches were. Um, that can just be a really helpful tool for actually thinking productively about some of the challenges that we face today. Speaking of challenges, what challenges did you encounter in researching and writing about a topic that involves uncovering historical secrets? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that that was a continual challenge throughout researching. After all, you're trying to write about things that people at the time were trying to keep secret. That necessarily is going to put up some obstacles. I mean, it put up. It was designed to put up obstacles um, for people at the time, and um, and then that you know leads to obstacles for us as historians. So, you know, something that this project made me think a lot about is is actually the question of the records that we have from a lot of these deliberative and legislative bodies and how those records are shaped by the procedural decisions that they made at the time, um, including questions of whether reporters would be let inside or um, questions about the technological situation of the reporters who were there and sort of the limits to their ability to record verbatim speech, for example, in a time period before recording technology and kind of the beginning of a lot of shorthand systems to try to do this. So the project made me think a lot about that. I I think often historians take you know, government records, records of legislative proceedings or newspaper accounts of legislative proceedings, for example, we often kind of go to those and we mine those for quotations, you know, from these politicians or revolutionaries. Um, understandably, we, we do that, but they're often kind of seen as like one of the more, one of the more stable or available sources that we have from the past, um, you know, in comparison to studying groups that left behind few written records, for example. But that's certainly true. Um, but I also think this project made me think a lot more about how those records themselves are often very problematic. So 
just to use an example, if we think about the records from the Constitutional Convention that met in Philadelphia, those are really um, problematic records in the sense that that convention met behind closed doors. Um, the journals that that were kept by the secretary were very limited. Um, they were kept under wraps for, for many, many years. Um, the best uh, kind of most rich notes that we have come from James Madison. Uh, but we also know that he heavily edited those after the convention. Um, and he also was very... Um, conscious of the fact that he felt that the notes should not be published um, until after the framers had had died, ideally, um, that that he wanted it to not really be possible for people to try to go back to the convention to determine, you know, the meaning or intent behind any of the particular clauses in the Constitution. Um, so if we think about that, if we think about the way those records were constructed with these particular intentions um, of trying to make it hard <laughs> to know what what was said or what exactly happened in those spaces, um, you know, I think that throws a lot into question about what we can say for sure about what happened or what people said at the time. So the book just made me think a lot more about the kind of sources that we have, even for these kind of meetings, which we consider some of the most well-documented, you know, events um, in the historical record, um, that even there, the records are are very limited, very um, problematic in many ways, and just require a lot of care when when we're treating them. What about the significance of your title, Democracy and Darkness, do you think encapsulates the essence of your work? Yeah, it's funny that you asked that. It took me a long time to arrive at that title, actually, and and sort of settle on that. Um, It's sort of a play on or response to the, the tagline of the Washington Post, which is that democracy dies in darkness. There's sort of an implied question mark maybe in the title of my book um, to kind of just invite readers to to kind of question whether that's true or not. And, and basically to kind of reckon with the fact that though we associate secrecy and darkness with being threatening to democracy, we have to confront the fact that the American representative democracy government was created in darkness behind closed doors, um, like we've been talking about with the Constitutional Convention. Um, So I think that that kind of forces to the forefront a lot of these kind of paradoxes and questions about what we actually mean by democracy um, and how it actually works in practice. So ultimately, I I do think the title uh, does capture a good deal about what the book is getting at, which is essentially, in short, that it's more complicated than saying democracy dies in darkness. Um, yeah, it's that's not the whole story. <laughs> in your analysis, did you find any instances where increased transparency led to unintended consequences in a revolutionary context? Um, yeah, so I mean, one of the great examples is uh, actually comes from the 
French context, like I was talking about earlier, where the early uh, French revolutionary legislatures are very committed to transparency, to allowing you know a public audience, allowing reporters to be present, to report on their deliberations. Um, so, you know, the, the intent there, right, is to gain the public trust, uh, to help establish their legitimacy as, as voices of the French people. I already mentioned earlier, some instances immediately came up where that seemed to not be working very well, where you actually had a lot of um, newspapers or demonstrations or petitions that were not in agreement with what the deputies were doing and sort of calling that legitimacy into question. Um, maybe, maybe the most pivotal example of this is actually in the summer of 1791 when King Louis XVI and his family uh, attempt to flee France and um, escape. And, and uh, the king leaves behind a letter d- denouncing the revolution. Um, and it's quite clear you know, that his intent was, was intentionally to, to leave um, but the, the National Assembly is very reluctant to accept this. They, they were near completion of the constitution they'd been drafting, and that constitution uh, had a constitutional monarch, um, and they decided that they wanted to keep that monarchy despite what had happened. Um, and after the king is is recognized and apprehended, brought back to Paris, um, they decide to, they, they kind of talk about what happened as a kidnapping. They kind of try to talk about that it was not necessarily what he wanted to do. And they decide to retain this king on the throne. And this is despite a lot of public outcry, um, you know, especially in Paris, to say, well, wait a minute, this king, we don't trust this king. We don't want this, we don't want this person to remain um, a king. And even some calls for for ending the monarchy entirely and establishing a republic. Um, and you have a lot of press reporting of what happened questioning, you know, why deputies are talking about this incident as a kidnapping when it's very clearly not a kidnapping. Um, And so there's just a lot of distrust that comes about from that. And a lot of that is the result of the transparency in the National Assembly, that newspapers are able to report on what is happening, and they are able to... uh, highlight that discord that's arising between this sort of loud cry coming from the public to remove Louis the 16th from the throne to question the monarchy um, and the deputy's decision to keep him on the throne and to retain the monarchy. And there's this real kind of jarring discord there. And I talk about in the book how, you know, that's possible and, and that kind of comes to be a lot through the transparency of the National Assembly and the way that they work and just the way that people are able to follow along in real time with what's going on, with the decisions that are being made and to kind of express their discontent with the outcome. And that ends up being a major turning point in the revolution where the king certainly loses a lot of credibility and public trust, ultimately kind of leading to the the end of the monarchy, not immediately, but ultimately 
but also the the legislative assembly the national assembly loses a lot of public trust um, as a result of that as well and loses a lot of legitimacy from that incident too what about the future can you discuss potential avenues for future research that could build upon the themes explored here in democracy and darkness yeah um so one of the things that I'm thinking about working on is sort of the question of truth and trust in relationship to public opinion. So I talk a lot in the book about how transparency becomes a norm, sort of a value and expectation in the late 18th century and how these new governments and new legislatures are getting set up and they're largely as we head toward the 19th century, moving toward having more open meetings. And there's sort of this promotion of publicity and politics. Um, And often the case for that, people making the case for that are viewing transparency as sort of a tool to make representatives accountable to the people and to, um, you know, educate public opinion, for example. But, pretty soon there's a concern about is that enough i guess and um how do you ensure that public opinion especially if you're gonna give it so much power in the government how do you ensure that it's rooted in the truth um that it's not rooted in error or lies or falsehoods or misrepresentations as they would put it and so um that's where I think I'm headed um, in the future is kind of thinking about how uh, people in the late 18th, early 19th century were thinking about truth in the political realm and how you would actually go about trying to secure that or guarantee that or promote that. Um, and that that actually goes beyond transparency um, into some other realms. Like, for example, when I was talking about the records of legislative deliberations, well, it's one thing to let reporters, you know, come into Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, for example, and record and then publish records of deliberations. And they start to do that um, in the 1790s. But like I was just saying, there are limitations, there are technological limitations, um, there are political biases, all kinds of things that come into play in the production of those records. Um, So one thing that I'm I'm looking at right now is actually how reporters begin to develop different shorthand methods and sonography to try to better capture speech and then how they start to publish and present that speech in these legislative assemblies as verbatim. Um, and that that gives sort of a, an idea that it is possible to, you know, establish the fixed truth of what a representative said in a space, for example, but that in practice, that's often not true, or it's still, it's still not able to really meet that standard, despite the illusion of being able to. So I'm kind of interested in how, um, how that affects the way that people think about questions of accountability and, and how representative government should work when it's very difficult to get at fixing the truth um, or the fact of the matter um, in, in public opinion. Any final thoughts for the New Books Network? 
Um, I guess I would just say that I, I hope that, um, that this book that I wrote and I, I think just history in, in general can really be a tool to people, for people to think about some of the really big challenges that we face today that democracies around the world face today. And a lot of the questions about the way our democracies will confront and deal with technological changes and advances, I really do think that thinking about these questions from a historical perspective can be extremely useful for trying to determine what we think about the current challenges and situations and and how we're going to confront them. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank our audience can thank Caitlin Marie Carter for discussing her new release, Democracy in Darkness, Secrecy and Transparency in the Age of Revolutions, out of Yale University Press. Subscribe to get more episodes like this one from the New Books Network.